0: I don't like fishing, the fish are slimy, the scales, their mouths that open, it's unpleasant. The disciples, who were fishermen, they would have grown up learning their trade from their fathers. As soon as they were old enough to be on the boats As soon as they were old enough to swim, they would have been there working with their fathers and their uncles. Boats made out of wood, covered in pitch and tar, grease. Nets that constantly needed fixing. Wind, waves, early mornings. Fish, scales, blood, birds everywhere. That is what they did. And if you had have gone to one of the disciples when they were young, when they were children, and you had have asked them this question, what are you going to be when you grow up? You would have confused them. <laughs> what do you mean, what am I going to be when I grow up? I hope to be myself. No, no, what, what's co- the career? that you're going to have? What are you going to do for a living when you grow up? I'm going to be a fisherman, of course. My father is a fisherman. My grandfather is a fisherman. That's what I'll do. And that is how it has been for much of Earth's history. If you were born the son of a fisherman, you would grow up to be a fisherman. If you were born the son of a baker, you'd grow up to be a baker. A baker. If you're born as a peasant, I hope you like being a peasant because you'll grow up to be a peasant. If you're born into the royal line, you'll grow up to be royalty. If you're born as a woman, you would work in the home. It's how it has been for much of history. If you were born a Stanley, do you want to know what happened? You would work in these stony fields, yeah, that was my people, Stan, Stone, Lee, Meadow, Lee. We worked with stone, making our houses out of stone. It was all stone and wood and wheat and sheep. Pretty much the game The Settlers of Catan, if you're familiar with the board game. <laughs> that was what would happen if you were born of Stanley. You would work with stones. That was up until a couple of generations ago when my great-grandfather began preaching He began preaching as a prisoner of war. He preached to his fellow soldiers to keep their morale up. When he came back to Australia, he continued preaching. My grandfather was a pastor. My grandfather's brother went to seminary and would preach while he farmed. My father is a pastor. My uncle, my dad's brother, is a pastor. My dad's two first cousins are pastors. My mother is a pastor. (laughs) My younger brother is a pastor. (laughs) There was a time at a Stanley family reunion where you'd ask Pastor Stanley to say the blessing and about 27 people would turn around. (laughs) Very quickly, a couple of weeks ago, my front yard didn't have enough stones in it. My field did not have enough stones for me. I was there building a dry creek bed. And as I was laying stones down in my field, I was rehearsing this sermon, I could feel the approval of my ancestors flowing through my veins. (laughs) But nowadays, everything is different. Nowadays, we ask you to choose what you're going to be. Unlike what I did, I clearly just went with the weight of history. (laughs) Nowadays, we say to you, listen, at the age of 16, you have to choose your career. You have to choose what you're going to do, whether it's a paid position or whether it's unpaid in the home. You have to work out what your preferences are, what your personality traits are, what your aptitude is, and then you have to match that to one of half a million different career options that are available out there for you. We ask you to choose a career that you will be proud of, that you will feel fulfilled in, Because at your deathbed, you will have probably spent approximately 90,000 hours working in your profession. We ask you to choose a career that you'll be proud of with your peers. We ask you to choose a career that your parents will be proud of. And that is a significant thing. Let me just say, as, as the high school minister, let me tell you what the kids say to me the expectations of parents upon children for what they will do, uh, it's real. And let me just tell you, I don't want to tell you how to do your job as parents, but let me tell you what the kids most want to hear. They want to hear from their parents this. I will love you so unconditionally, without regard, that no matter what you do, I will continue to be proud of you. Provided that you can be financially independent, (laughs) and that it is legal and moral. (laughs) But aside from that, I will continue to love you. And so once you have chosen this career, then you go out, and if it's a paid position, What we do is we give you this valuation, this literal money exchange where we say to you, hey, this is how much you are worth in this community, in this society. We exchange that. We give you this valuation. And so it's no wonder that these days we so easily, we equate our identity with what we do. We treat it like it's the most important question to answer. What do you do? Because once you've found the answer to that question, you will know who you are. But here's the thing. I think that is a myth. I think your identity, who you are, it's not what you do. It's based around what you love. It's based around what you desire. See, what you love drives your actions and your habits and your thoughts. You are not what you do. You are what you love. Let me illustrate this very quickly. A few years ago in Australia, I was selling one of my vehicles, an FJ80, a Toyota Land Cruiser, for those who care. I still miss that truck. As I was selling that vehicle, I, I just took a few extra steps so that when the sale took place, there was nothing hidden that the car was mechanically sound. There were some unusual steps, but I I went through them. Just before I handed this car over, I took it down. There was a used car lot just near my place, and they did detailing services. And so I took it down there for it to be detailed. And I must admit, when I parked and hopped out of my vehicle, as the man who owned that lot came up to me, I judged him. I did. He came up with the usual friendliness, and I thought, oh, here come the sales tactics. I'm going to have to tell him that I've sold this vehicle. I'm not going to get off this lot for a long time. I thought that he wore the gold chain around his neck just a little too proudly. I did the judgy, judgy thing completely. He comes up to me, what's happening? I need this car detailed. Why? I've sold it. Oh, tell me about the sale. And he asked some questions. And in the conversation came up kind of the steps I'd gone through. And he became confused and curious. But, but why did you do this? And why did you do it like that? And eventually I just quoted something I'd heard my father-in-law say, actually. That I, I guess I've always just found that the expenses you pay, to be honest, are worth it. And at that point, his reaction was so sweet and priceless. He grabbed me by both of my shoulders. This massive smile comes across his face. And he says, I'm a Christian too. (laughs) He hadn't asked. I hadn't said anything about my profession. He just said, I am a Christian too. And he pulled his gold chain out. And on the end of the gold chain, there was a cross. He told me how he had recently come from Iraq and how he was loving the freedom that he had to practice his faith and how he was proud of his faith. He was a good man, running a good business, an honest man. His identity was not found in what he did. His identity was most truly found in what he loved. You aren't what you do, you are what you love. So who are you by your desires? Who are you by what you love? The disciples, and they were fishing. And then along came this apocalyptic peasant preacher, proclaiming the kingdom of God, doing things that no one else has ever done since or before on this earth. And he said, come, follow me. And so they did. They left their nets and they followed Jesus. But as they followed, they were sure that he was setting up a kingdom like the other kingdoms that they knew. Kingdoms on this earth filled with fame and riches and spoils and power. As they followed, it was the mother of James and John, the wife of Zebedee, who said to Jesus what the disciples didn't have the courage to say. When your kingdom comes, I'd just like to reserve uh, the left and the right spot for my boys. Can can, can those seats be theirs? And Jesus had to say, listen, I don't think you understand what you're asking for. When my kingdom comes, I will be coronated on a cross. I'm not sure if you want your boys on the left and the right-hand side of me then. But they didn't understand this kingdom of Jesus. They stayed with it. But it became more and more clear. Until there was that weekend, the chaos of that weekend, the violence in the air, the kangaroo court, the injustice. And as Peter began to see clearly what this kingdom was about, you find him there swearing black and blue that he does not want to be a part of it. And Jesus is crucified on the cross, And the disciples are not on his left or his right. They're not even at the foot of the cross, except for the young John and the women. You know where they are? They're locked in a room for fear of the leaders. Mary has the courage to follow the Lord. She is the first one that he appears to, risen, And Mary runs back to this room where these disciples are locked. In John chapter 20, we're told, she knocks on the door, she says, listen, the Lord is risen. At that point, they should celebrate, leave the room, and go and preach the kingdom. That's what they should do. But why would they believe the witness of a woman? Why would Jesus talk to a woman first after he's just been resurrected? No, they stay locked in the room. So Jesus appears amongst them, miraculously, though the doors are locked. And he says to them, This peace be with you. What you're afraid of, you will live in peace. You will be okay. Now, as the Father has sent me, I send you. Time to go. Good, good. Mary, Jesus, you'd expect them to leave at that point, wouldn't you? John chapter 20, verse 26. Eight days later, they were still in their house with the doors locked. But this time they had more people locked in the room with them. This time Thomas was there with them. And so Jesus appears again. Thomas, stop doubting, believe, my hands, my side, go in peace, I send you. Okay, Mary, Jesus, Jesus, they're about to go out. And they're about to preach the gospel. John chapter 20, verse 2 21, verse 2. You know what the first thing that they do is when they leave the house? The sons of Zebedee say this let's go fishing. Fishing. Six disciples say, yeah, let's go together. Let's go fishing. And so they leave their locked confines and they go fishing. They fish all night, and they catch absolutely nothing. And so Jesus walks upon the shore, and he sees them out there, and he says, listen, friends, have you caught any fish? And it's actually quite a funny situation, because it's clear that they haven't. The sun has risen. If they'd caught any fish, they would be off the lake. There's no other boats out there. There's one boat with a bunch of disciples sitting in there fishing. Jesus walks upon the shore and says, listen, have you caught any fish? They're like, no. No, we haven't. And then Jesus says this to them, and it's such an interesting statement. He says, have you tried the other side of the boat? (laughs) Put your nets on the other side, three feet away. Put your nets there. And these boys are so desperate, they try it. I challenge you, church, to go to any fishing town, and as the trawlers come in with hard and seasoned fishermen upon them, ask them how their catch was and if they say they didn't have a great catch say with a straight face did you try both sides of the boat <laughs> <laughs> they throw their net on the other side and there's 153 fish it nearly breaks they drag it in and at this point they recognize that it is Jesus on the shore and Jesus has prepared for them breakfast and there they come and then they eat And then Jesus has this moment. He says, listen, Peter, there's something we need to talk about. Peter, I want to ask you a question about who you are, about your identity, not based on what you do, but based on what you love. Peter, who are you by what you love? Peter, do you love me more than these? And in the context, these, it's fish. <laughs> Jesus says, listen, Peter, you've kind of been caught. There were these moments where we were going to go out and preach the kingdom. You left the house, and you're fishing. So it's a fair question. Do you love me more than fish? Have you fallen for the fish? It was Saint Augustine, an incredibly profound thinker and writer. He had troubles in his life early on. He had troubles with desire for food and he had troubles with lust. And he found that three things were happening to him because of his desires. He found, first of all, that he was never satisfied He found that all of his relationships around him were breaking down, and he found that he kept on doing things that he didn't want to do. And so he reflected on this deeply and in prayer, and he came up with an answer that I think is actually very, very profound. He said, the problem in my life is disordered loves. It's not that you shouldn't love food, food is delicious. It's not that intimacy and beauty are bad things in themselves. But listen, your loves must be in order. Too often, he said, we pursue these lower order goods above the higher order goods, and in that we create sin. What's he saying very simply? He's saying, listen, God's law is first of all, love God with all your heart and your soul and your mind and your neighbor as yourself and then everything else after that. But if you love food and your love for food comes at the expense of someone, it will never satisfy. You can love your career. That's a fair thing to love. But if your career is the ultimate reason why you exist, if your career is all that you live for, it will never satisfy be good enough. That position is to be occupied by God. Essentially, he is saying this, listen, if you love people and use things, you'll be okay. But if you use people and love things, it will all fall apart. The kingdom of God, he says, is set up in such a way that if you pursue justice and kindness and righteousness first, all of these things can be added to you. But if you pursue all of these things first, you will lose all of them. And so Jesus comes to Peter and says, Peter, are your loves in order? Do you desire first the kingdom of God, or do you love fish more than me? You know that I love you. And so then Jesus pushes the question again. He repeats the question to make sure that Peter is sure. He asks the question, Peter, do you love me? Are you sure? There is a Russian film. It is called The Stalker. It is a 1970s, it's this post-apocalyptic sci-fi film directed by Andrei Tarkovsky, and it is widely considered a work of absolute genius. It's a story, though, that has at its centre, there's this terrifying truth. The plot goes like this. There is the stalker, that's the Russian transliteration for guide, and then there's a writer and a philosopher the writer and the philosopher are meant to represent the epitome of someone who has reflected upon their life somebody who knows truly who they are and they go on this journey to what is called the room in that room when you open the door you will have revealed to yourself your truest desire the thing that you most truly want the desire that has hurt you the most the desire that you truly truly want. And the storyline goes like this. They make this journey. They get closer and closer to this room. And as they get closer, they become more and more scared. Eventually, when they get to the room, the writer and the philosopher, their courage fails. They're not brave enough to look and to see what is in that room. They are scared that what they truly desired... Oh, maybe they can't live with that. They're scared that what they thought they truly desired might be not what they actually did, desire. They're not brave enough to come to the recognition of the truth about what they actually want in this life. And so they leave the door closed. There is another guide that comes. This guide is named Porky Pine, and he takes a man to this room. This man, as he comes to this room, he has lost his brother. And he is sure that what he truly wants in this life is his brother to live again. And he flings open this door, hoping that revealed to him will be his living brother and he'll receive his brother again. But in this room, there is nothing but a dirty pile of cash. And he can't live with that. (laughs) The point of the movie is this. First of all, our identity is found in what we desire. But secondly, we can be wrong in what we think we desire. And so the question is this do you have the courage to open the door and to ask yourself what you truly want? Jesus comes to Peter Peter, are you sure about what you truly want? And that's the question for us. What is it that you truly want in this life? Is it goodness? Is it family? Is it joy? Is it fun? Is it church? Is it to be the smartest person in the room? Is it money? Is it power? Is it someone or something that might be illegal or immoral? What is it that you truly want? If you have the courage to answer that question, you'll be able to go forward. Peter, what is it that you want? Are your desires? Or uh, your <laughs> desires in order. Peter, what is it that you truly want? Are you brave enough to ask that question? And so then he comes again. And this time, as Jesus repeats the question, the refrain on the end becomes clearer. Peter, do you love me? If you love me, go feed my sheep. It's James Smith. He's a contemporary writer and thinker, and he makes an very good argument on a presentation he's done on the Veritas Forum. He says this, listen, our desires, our wants, are sometimes programmed for us by our habits. He says this, listen, we would all agree that, in theory, being a consumerist to a fault is a bad thing. We'd all agree that basing our entire identity and value on the possession of things, believing that we will be happy when we achieve this next desired object, would all agree that that's that's not a great way to live. But he says the reality is is that many of us live that way. Why? Because of our habits. Because we scroll through advertisements relentlessly. Because we consume huge amounts of media. And our desires have been programmed by our habits. And so he says this, if you want new habits, if you want new desires, just choose them. Make a choice. And so Jesus comes and says, listen, Peter, do you love me? If you love me, if you want new desires, just care for my sheep. Just begin habitually caring for those around you looking after them. And your desires will alter around your behaviors. Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And so then Jesus gives him one last test. He says this, listen, if you want to live in this kingdom, if you want to live this life where your identity is based upon love, let me tell you what is going to happen to you next. The very thing that you were trying to avoid, the very thing that you did not want, you are going to be led with your arms outstretched to a place you do not want to go. Peter, you're gonna be crucified in this kingdom. I love Peter's response in the scripture. It's the most human response ever. He literally turns around and says, but what about him? <laughs> he turns around and points at John and says, okay, Jesus, okay, do him next. Tell him about his gruesome death next, okay? Great to hear. What's going to happen to him? And Jesus' response, again, its hilarious. Jesus says, well, listen, If I want him to stay alive until I come the second time, what is that to you? (laughs) What's the exact opposite of dying a gruesome death on a cross soon? Living forever. (laughs) Never dying. But Jesus says, listen, Peter, what is that to you? If you have chosen your identity based on what you love, If you want to be a part of this kingdom, come what may, you will live with purpose if you choose love first above all things. What is that to you? We live in a world where we want to go viral, my generation especially. We want to be well known for what we do. We want to be celebrated for the work we accomplish, we want to be known as sports stars, as athletes, as musicians. We want to be known for being titans of industry. We want the world to pay attention to us. A few months ago, I was fortunate enough to go on a trip to the Holy Lands. And we went there with members from this church and others, and we went to a city called Caesarea Maritima. And as we sat there in this incredible Roman amphitheater, the guide explained to us what would have happened in that city 2,000 years ago. He talked about the gladiators as they would have conquests against each other, these athletes that were celebrated. He told us about how there were musicians and plays that people would travel to see from all over the Roman Empire. They had their individuals who who traded in such a way that they created immense wealth and they were celebrated. They had their people who were in power And as we sat there, I thought to myself, prompted by the insights of Dr. Joel Gregory, that if I went back 2,000 years ago, and in that city I was there while it was in uproar, as they sung their songs of Roman victory while the gladiators tore each other apart, if someone had asked me then, in 2,000 years' time, who is going to be the reason why everybody is coming to this city, If they had have asked me in 2,000 years' time, who is going to be the name that will still be remembered, I would have said probably one of the gladiators, probably one of the athletes, probably one of the superstars of industry. But that day as we sat there on these amphitheater steps, the reason why busload after busload after busload of people stopped in that city was this, because Peter, A peasant subsistence fisherman, destroyed by his life in the sun, hands calloused, clothes tattered, had walked into that city, and there he preached a message of love. There he spoke of a God who freely forgives, and he baptized a centurion, the first Gentile, into the Christian faith. The reason why any of us were there that day was because somebody lived a life of purpose founded on love. We'd forgotten the names of their athletes, of their superstars. But we were there because Peter chose to love. A few months ago, I was fortunate enough to return to Australia. My brother, he got married Married a wonderful girl. It's just a fantastic, fantastic time there together with the family. We all crashed at my parents' place. They live just outside of Avondale College. And each day I would go for a run, just because that's what I like to do. There by my parents' place is my grandfather's and my grandmother's grave, the grandfather I spoke about earlier. And there the two of them lie. They were just... Beautiful and in love their entire lives. Just, just incredible people. I love them so much. But they lie under these words from Daniel chapter 12. Those who practice compassion, they will shine like the stars forever. I don't know what you do for your living, for your life whether you're a teacher or a professor or a philosopher, whether you stay at home and care for the kids, whether you're unemployed. But this is the point. If you live a life of love, if your identity is found on love, you will be a part of this this stream that is running through history that will not stop until Christ returns. You will shine as the stars forever. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that you bless and guide us. May your face rise upon us. May your countenance give us peace. May you bless us. Amen. Find more podcasts, videos, church events and how you can support the Loma Linda University Church at LLUC.org.